0: I-O-9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
2: Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as The Way of the Wizard and Brave New Worlds, and I also edit the magazines Fantasy and Lightspeed.
1: And I'm David Barr-Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including Veil of Ignorance, about a strange drug that causes a group of friends to share each other's thoughts. The story appeared in All the Rage this year, the Phobos Science Fiction Anthology 3, and in MechMuse Audio Magazine. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing Daniel Abraham. He's the author of the epic fantasy series, The Long Price Quartet, and his latest novel is called The Dragon's Path, book one in The Dagger and the Coin Quintet. He's also currently adapting George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones into graphic novel format.
2: All right, so let's get to our interview.
0: All
1: right, so we're here with Daniel Abraham. Welcome to the show. Why, thank you, sir. Okay, so uh, first of all, it was recently announced that you'll be adapting George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones into graphic novel format.
0: Tell us about that. Well, um, this is actually not the first thing of George's that I've adapted. Um, I did Fever Dream uh, and a novella of his called Skin Trade. But uh, I've been doing that kind of thing with George for, for a few years now, actually.
1: So, I mean, like, what are some of the challenges you faced and lessons you've learned uh, when it comes to writing graphic novel adaptations?
0: The the things that really make prose snappy and fun and exciting don't actually work as graphic novels don't work in comics because you know when you're reading fiction uh, the thing that snaps is the dialogue right you get two people talking back and forth then they got the whole thing going kind of keeps things moving fast but if you put it in art you get two heads to <laughs> each other for pages so the hard part of the adaptation is taking the parts of the story the information that you can show visually and taking it out of the dialogue and out of the summary and putting it into the images. And sometimes that's really graceful and easy, and sometimes it's, you know, pulling teeth. Um, with Game of Thrones in particular, Game of Thrones is a, a, a hard thing to adapt, especially the Daenerys line, because you kind of uh, can't draw what he wrote. You can't film it either. I mean, one of the, the things that I'm Interested to see uh, with HBO is how they've dealt with that. I think we've adopted some of the same strategies. I think a lot of the characters in the book are getting aged up when you put them into a visual medium. But, you know, Daenerys in those books, she starts out at 13. And it's kind of a story about her sexuality. And it's really uncomfortable being, you know, a 40 year old guy talking about how to how to draw a thirteen year old sexuality. That's that's uncomfortable. So with that work you know, as with I think HBO, we're 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 aging up characters and that shifts what the story is to a certain degree.
1: Uh there have been a couple instances recently where people have actually faced criminal charges for possessing comic books. I don't know. I was just wondering have you followed any of those cases or do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well Yeah, I'm aware of those cases. They've come up in conversation. (laughs) We were talking about Daenerys. Um, I am tremendously uncomfortable with those cases, and I'm uncomfortable because I am of two minds. On the one hand, I think that we're in a culture where the sexuality of adolescence really needs to be walled off from adult sexuality. I I can't think in my experience or the experience of my friends or my family of any situation in which a young girl or young boy's sexuality has intersected with a genuinely adult world in a way that was good for anybody involved. Now that's not necessarily the standard throughout history, that's not necessarily the standard throughout the world, but this is where we're living right now. And I got a daughter Guys you know I got a kid, and if she brings home you know if she's thirteen and brings home a twenty year old guy, I'm gonna kill him <laughs> and the only reason I wouldn't kill him is that my wife would get to him first that's the only reason <laughs> one of us would be there to make bail um and so that sexualizing you know and I say sexualizing thirteen year olds have a sexuality, but it's not my business hasn't been my business since I was thirteen. The stories and the entertainment that is presented to me as an adult about those populations I think is really suspect and really dangerous. And on the other hand, just because something is suspect or dangerous doesn't mean it ought to be illegal. I would love for there to be a good, clean line I could draw through this. I would love that. I don't see it. And especially when you come to a comic book, or you know something in which there are no actors, there are no actual 13-year-olds involved. It's all just thought. I have a very hard time saying that that ought to be illegal. Stigmatized. I'm comfortable with stigmatized. Icky. I'm I'm comfortable walking around saying it's icky and wrong and I don't like it, but I don't think I can call it criminal. I want to. I don't think I can.
1: Okay. So, I mean, you've you've collaborated with George R. R. Martin on a number of projects. Uh, how did that all start?
0: It started back in 1998. I was at the Clarion West workshop in Seattle, and George was one of my professors. Uh, George and Gardner both. And George lived about an hour north of me. And when I got back to town, we wound up spending some more time together. We were in some of the same uh, critique groups. And when a project came up like Wild Cards, where he was looking for a, a variety of people to do it, um, I was one of the names that came up. And when Hunter's Run, Hunter's Run's kind of the big one. That's a the novel that George and Gardner and I all did. And the way that happened was back when I was in grade school, Gardner started writing this story. <laughs> And, you know, did, did a fair chunk of it and then kind of ran out of steam and wound up taking it to a workshop. I think I would have been in early high school like maybe sophomore year of high school when he took it to a workshop with George. And, you know, George liked it more than some of the other folks necessarily did. And, and they decided to go ahead and collaborate on it. And so. Gardner gave it to George, and George wrote a section on it and handed it back to Gardner, and then there's that. And over the years, they had kind of poked around looking for maybe a third collaborator, somebody who would be interested in uh, taking it and finishing it off. And most people have the good sense not to, Mm -hmm. and I didn't. Um, So one night, Lord, five years ago, something like that. I went out to dinner with George and he said, So, Daniel, how would you feel about a three way with two old faggots? <laughs> and I said, You've been practicing that line, haven't you? <laughs> and they gave me the manuscript and that actually wound up being a novella called Shadow Twin. And it was, you know, it was a good novella. I, I, I worked out pretty well. We sold it to Asimov's and to, I think the first one we sold it to actually was Sci Fiction, back when uh, Ellen Batlow was, was running that, running the website. And we kind of came to the conclusion that there was some story that hadn't been told, even with the novella. So we expanded it. We made it, to, actually, we threw out the original book entirely, we threw out the novella. And wrote the whole thing again from scratch, making it bigger and expanding on the world and changing the plot a little bit here and there. Um, and it wound up being the novel Hunter's Run. Because if we had kept it Shadow Twin, then there would have been the chat book Shadow Twin that was the novella and another separate book with completely different content by the same authors with the same title. And that sounds like a bad idea. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and you're also uh, collaborating with uh, George's assistant, Ty, right?
0: Yes, we are. Um, we're coming out with a book called *Leviathan Wakes*. It's a space opera. It's coming out in June um, from Orbit. It's the first book in a series called *The Expanse*. And
2: it's under the byline James Corey, right? James S. A. Corey. I am the James half. He is the Corey half. <laughs> so how that uh, how that byline come about?
0: Well, I have this thing about pseudonyms. I I think that they are generally speaking a good idea, and I can go into that if you want, but. How we came out with that particular one is my middle name is James and his middle name is Corey. So we just sort of stuck them together. And uh he wanted to have my kid in the mix someplace, and her initials are S.A., so we put her in the middle.
2: So so uh, why do you think uh, pseudonyms are a good idea?
0: I think that the way you win as a writer is you meet people's expectations. And I think one of the ways you meet people's expectations is you set them. And I think the name of the writer is part of what sets them. There was this time – here's my my kind of standard anecdote on this one. There was a a Worldcon a few years back, and Walter Mosley was there. You guys know Walter Mm Mosley? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Easy Rawlings, et cetera. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he was there, and he he had done some science fiction in addition to his his mystery stuff. And he was telling this story about going into a, a bookstore, and one of his science fiction books was there in the mystery section. So he picked it up and he took it up to the info desk and he told them, you know, this is misshelved. This is in mystery and it should be in science fiction. And the guy at the info desk said, oh no, that's why Walter Mosley, he writes mystery. Hmm. And Mosley said, I- I'm Walter Mosley. And he said he could see the guy trying to say, and you write mystery. You know, <laughs> right there. Um, you know, when an author has any level of success, they become identified with the successful work. This is, that's what happened sort of to Donaldson, to Stephen R. Donaldson. There was a, a, a quote. I don't know if he ever actually said it. This might be apocryphal. But when the, the second chronicles of Thomas Covenant were finished, he said, you know, I thought I had a million Stephen R. Donaldson fans. I had a million Thomas Covenant fans. When he went over to do the Gap series, the fans didn't follow him.
2: Which is a real shame, actually, because that's a great series. I love that series.
0: Yeah, no, and, you know, he's still just as good a writer as he ever was. Uh, It's just that uh, when you start changing what you're delivering – do you ever have this – this is another example I always use. uh, Do you ever do the thing where you you forgot that you uh, ordered a Coke and you think it's iced tea? (laughs) And then you take a sip of it and you think, oh, my God, what the hell was that? (laughs) It's kind of the same thing. You know, for, in my case, I'm writing, uh, epic fantasy under Daniel Abraham, I'm writing urban fantasy under MLN Hanover, and I'm writing space opera as James Corey. It doesn't matter how good an urban fantasy I write, if you're kind of primed to read epic fantasy, it's not going to be that good. Uh, so by changing the name of the author, part of what I get to do is say, no, look, this is by, this is, this is something else.
2: Okay, so uh, one of the first things you wrote that made a big splash was a very dark story called uh, Flat Diane, which appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, can you tell us a bit what that was about and uh, what sort of response you got from it?
0: That was a really interesting project. Um, there's this Flat Stanley project that's that, an actual real thing. And I had a cousin who was named Maxine, and I was at a family wedding, and Maxine's parents were there and they were talking about how they had taken Maxine and they had done this kind of tracing of her and they'd sent it out on adventures. So they would mail it to somebody and then Flat Maxine would be there and they'd send out pictures of Maxine like at the Eiffel Tower or <laughs> you know, uh in Scotland with family or, you know, New York or wherever wherever Maxine was traveling, right? And then the the letters and pictures would come back to the real Maxine. And she could see kind of a, a better picture of the world and the people she knew and get to kind of understand the scale of things. And they thought this was all really cool. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, I'm a rationalist. I, I have no superstitious bone in my body, but you just put your kid's soul in the mail? You're <laughs> And I, I came up with the idea of somebody mailing out their kid's soul and it going astray and that turned into a, a story called Flat Diane. It it, ha, it has made a certain reputation as a horror story, it won the International Horror Guild award, and I didn't know it was a horror story. Um some very very unpleasant things happen in it. But when I wrote it, my wife was working early intervention with kids between 0 and 3, and this 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 is this is a child molestation story. But it's a child molestation story in which uh the kid isn't really physically being molested. People know about it, they can do something about it and they care. Uh which makes it a more pleasant story than your average social worker's average week. So I you know, I I, I respect that it's a uh a disturbing story and that the it reads as horror, but boy that wasn't my experience of it.
1: Okay, so I mean, another story of yours that's gotten a lot of attention is called "The Canvas Demurred Iron," a fairy tale of economics. Uh, what's that story about, and how'd you come up with the idea?
0: Well, I, the idea came from the anthology. It was in the, the, our mandate on that one was to take words from winning words from the the National Spelling Bee and build stories around them. And the one I picked was Canvassed, which is a, a money changer. And it was interesting because I, I hadn't actually done any short stories for a while when I took on that assignment, and I got canvassed, and I, I thought about it, and I, I worked it up, and I wrote this story, and it was crap. It was terrible. It was a very bad story, and I looked, and I thought, oh, I have forgotten how to write short stories. That's a pity, Uh and I went off to the, the library, and I borrowed a bunch of books of short stories, and I read short stories for a couple of weeks until I kind of remembered how to do it again. And what I came up with was a fairy tale. I I took this kind of very standard fairy tale structure in which there are three tests, and each of the tests has kind of a a larger scale. And in the process of all of this, the hero is saved or, or ennobled or Everybody gets what they need as a result of them. Only instead of having it be magical tests, I had it be kind of, you know, free economics level economics 101 classes. And uh, that's, that's what it turned into, and it was really nice, um, because there were a certain number of actual economists who read and, and responded to the story when it came out. Brad DeLong and Paul Krugman got into a little conversation about it online. That was pretty much hmm. the best thing that's happened to me, pretty close.
1: <laughs> I mean, is economics something you're interested in? Did you do any research or anything uh, for that
0: story? I didn't do it for that story in particular. It's something that interests me, um, and it has interested me probably for, oh, eight or nine years. Um, I I don't have any kind of formal training in it. I, I read the popular economics books, and I... Listen to the Planet Money, uh, podcast from NPR and having that, uh, kind of set of tools to think about problems, uh, thinking about, okay, you know, what is the opportunity cost? Whatever you're going to do, what's the opportunity cost? Oh, right. Okay. What are the incentives on something? Oh, okay. Even though I think there are some assumptions at the base of, uh, modern economics at least that are clearly wrong. Um, economics is based on the idea that we're all rational actors who will work in our own self-interests. That's not my experience with people.
1: I think it's, I'd just be curious to know what you think, because I, I wonder about this a lot, is that, you know, people call economics the dismal science, and it has these assumptions that just seem crazy, like rational actors with access to perfect information and stuff like that. Um, but then you get people like Paul Krugman who seem to make pretty accurate predictions, but then you get lots of other economists who seem to be just as well-educated, say, but their predictions are completely wrong. Do you have any – just take on any of that?
0: Well, I – you know, one of the expectations is that economists are rational, and I think that's probably optimistic. <laughs> um, I I think that one of the things that's that's true of anybody who's making up a narrative – um, and economists fit into that. Economists and storytellers and politicians, anybody who's creating a narrative is in real danger of imposing the narrative they've already got on the information they have at hand. I think that Paul Krugman has something of a liberal bias, and I think uh, reality has something of a liberal bias. <laughs> That's me, right? That's the story I'm telling, Um so I yeah, I think his expectations and, and predictions have been pretty good and continue to be. But I don't know how you go into something like that. I mean if if, you know, when you were sixteen uh or fifteen or whenever, when you were young and impressionable, you read Ann Rand or God forbid knew her, which is I think what happened to Greenspan, I could be wrong about that. Um I think that changes who you are and changes your self image and changes how you think the world works. And I don't know how you come into something with your prejudices intact uh, and don't have that effect how you think that things are going to play out. Uh, now, for Greenspan, that was tragic. You know, you, you saw him. You know, here's a, one of the most respected men in the world standing up before Congress and saying that everything he thought about how the world works was wrong, and as a result, millions of people suffer. Millions of people are turned out of their homes. They don't lose their jobs because this guy was too impressed by Ayn Rand. That's harsh. And I think it's also very, very human.
2: So your latest novel is the first in a new series called uh, The Dragon's Path. Can you tell us what that's about?
0: Well, what happened after, I I did the long prize quartet, and um, they were kind of weird because I was doing a bunch of, you know, I was thinking, you know, what we really want in fiction is originality, right? Because that's what they tell us. And so I did this thing where it had a very, very idiosyncratic time structure with the four books, and it was in a non-European setting, and it was a very strange magic system, and you know, it was was doing a lot of things that I didn't see in fantasy very often, and it was great fun, and I'm really glad I did it. And then, when I was done with that, I thought, you know, what I I want to do next is actually write a fantasy series, kind of (laughs) like the ones that I grew up with the ones I like and I got a bunch of people together I got them together at Melinda Snodgrass's house up in Santa Fe and it was folks like George and Steve Sterling and Walter John Williams and Ian Tregillis and and Ty was there and uh, we spent a day talking about what epic fantasy was and what its strengths were and what it was about um, and what kinds of psychological Truths inform it and why it's cool. And I took that and I went away and I tried to build the structure of an epic fantasy that really played to those, that really kind of embraced the strengths of the genre. And then I took everything that I thought was cool and I used that. So I think the Medici Bank is really cool. So that's in there. And I think um, Walter Tevis's Queen's Gambit is really cool. And so that's in there, And I think that you know I really liked Babylon Five, and I really like Firefly, so they're they're kind of in there I, I I ripped off a bunch of stuff that I really, really love. Um, it's a world where in millennia back, the dragons ruled the world and took humans and made slave races out of them. And then the dragons fell apart. the dragons all died off the the empire fell. And so, for the last few millennia, it's been the humans kind of living in the ruins of the great empire. And the story that I'm telling is it's, it's a, a paired story. There are there are two main kind of characters around whom events flow. Uh, one of them is a nobleman who is you know despised and rises to power and becomes uh, the regent of his land and leads his nation in a, a bid toward regaining greatness and, and kind of expanding in that great colonialist fashion and the other is um, the other one is where, where normally you would take the uh... farm boy chosen a prophecy and he will go on to you know save the world um I've taken uh, an orphan girl who was raised by a bank who will now go on to save the world.
1: Well, well, yeah, it's, I thought it was interesting that you know we were talking about economics and it seems like economics plays a role in this book as well. could you Could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, I think that the two ways that societies tend to interact with each other is either they make friends and intermarry and trade stuff, or they kill each other. That's the dagger and the coin. The dagger is war and the coin is trade. And I think we tell a lot of stories about war. And I think we tell very few stories about trade.
1: Hey, what you were saying earlier kind of reminded me of this thing I heard that where where, where goods cross borders, troops don't, and where goods don't cross borders, troops do. Have you ever heard that? Yeah,
0: yeah. I I don't think really have heard that formulation of it, but that's absolutely the uh, the kind of ethos that I'm drawing from. That's the that's the analysis that I'm, I believe in. And and you have these wonderful. Examples you have these wonderful uh medieval banks. I mean those guys were were fascinating the way that there's this kind of constant love hate relationship, this constant you know we need to have the banks, but we hate all the bankers, but we want to have the money, but we hate all the people <laughs> who lend the money um you know th- the reason that usury was a sin, the reason that lending at interest was a sin in medieval Europe was. That it could make rich men poor and poor men rich. Just lending at interest, just being a banker, the absolute minimum thing that a banker does is destabilize society. You know, if you have that medieval lo- mindset where there is the great chain of being, here's somebody who's ignoring that, who's, who's building against that, and is answerable to no king, and lives entirely on knowing things that other people don't know. You know, that's that's what my culture venerates. We love that stuff. We think that's that's you know social mobility is uh, a profound good thing, and that's bankers.
1: Although I mean, at the moment, I think most people sort of look at bankers as the villains of our of our story. Did you? Uh... Most
0: people look at most people look at bankers as the villains of our stories because of what they've become. But most people still go to the bank when they want to get a house or a car.
1: I mean did you did you write your story at all as sort of in any way as a reaction to current events or was it just uh
0: You know, most of the current events happened after I was already started. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't get a chance to. But um but it's been really interesting to me watching that kind of unfold. Because the thing that the, the difference between the world in kind of the medieval setting and the world I'm working in and the world we live in now is once upon a time there was a counterbalance to the forces of commerce. You know, they had the church. If the church came and said uh, this is a sin, you can't do it. By God, they couldn't do it.
1: I mean, you know, one thing that happens in the book is there are these characters who end up with a giant pile of money. And it didn't never really occurred to me before, but as I was reading it, or maybe, you know, because it's a fantasy novel, it just occurred to me that there are a lot of parallels between a giant pile of money and Tolkien's one ring, you know, that it mm-hmm. has a lot of power, and it draws trouble, and it corrupts people around you. Uh, was that mm-hmm. a parallel that you were conscious of while you were writing it?
0: No, but I think it's really cool now that you say it. <laughs> I think, you know, the ring and money both are tokens of power, and I really think it's the power that has that uh, that drawing of trouble and that 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 corrupting influence i mean money is magic too there's nothing about money that makes it money except that we all agree to it and if you define magic as an act of will having an effect upon the real world that's what we did we 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 all agreed that gold was an abstract signifier of you know value whatever that is And because we all agreed to that, you can have a cheap light bulb. You didn't make a light bulb. I couldn't make a light bulb. I don't have the skills. No one does. Without having money, without having that magic, without having that kind of totally absurd act of collective will, you couldn't have any of the stuff we have now. The world would be completely different. We only don't call it magic because it works.
2: I actually think of that uh, one ring money comparison all the time when I uh, deposit change in my Mount Doom piggy bank.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't melt your money
1: down, though. <laughs> um, could you talk about uh, the world building a little bit more? I mean, you know, like Tolkien, you know, famously did all this world building before he even started the plot. But I, I, I think most writers probably the plot and the world building sort of are developed in tandem. I mean, how much of the stuff had you figured out before coming up out? How- coming up with the plot and how much of it sort of grew out of the plot?
0: Yeah, they all kind of come together for me. The the I knew that there were some things that I specifically wanted to do with uh making the world if the story happens in really um you know, a fantasy world. I wanted to make it I wanted to have that kind of sense of wonder in it. And I wanted to have, you know, the the great visual images. You know, like uh George has the wall and the Irie, and you know, he has these amazing set pieces that where you just go and you can you can imagine these places and see them. And I knew that I wanted to have those in there. And I knew I wanted to have a bunch of different kind of versions of of you know, my versions of the elves and the the dwarves and the trolls and all the things that didn't actually borrow directly from the the kind of classic ones. But I wanted to have that sense of exoticism and, and strangeness and difference and variety.
1: Well, like the the, the guard dog who's sort of chained outside the front door, for me, is one of those, those sort of images you're talking about. That,
0: uh... Oh, like the guard, the, the, the little the door slaves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Roman. I, I ripped that off directly.
1: <laughs> but they didn't I, have yeah. dogs, though, right? I mean, dog men, you know?
0: Well, yeah, the dog the the dog men are not Roman. The right? <laughs> chaining of the front door is. Uh, chaining the slave to the front door is. All
2: right, well, is there anything else you're working on right now that you'd like to mention?
0: Um the the four things I'm working on are the Dagger and the coin series that we talked about, uh the Space Opera series with Ty coming out under James S. A. Corey, that's coming out in June. And I would mention that if you decide to uh participate in that with your ebook reader, if you pick up the Dragon's Path or Leviathan Wake's uh the fine folks at tour it throw in the other one. So you get two books, either way you buy it. Um, the comic book adaptation of A Game of Thrones, and I'm also writing urban fantasy under the, the pseudonym MLN Hanover. That's the the Black Sun's Daughter series. first three of those are out. fourth one's coming out in November. All
1: right, well, Daniel Abraham, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks again to Daniel Abraham for joining us on the show. All right, so now uh, John and I are going to be discussing the uh, Game of Thrones. TV show that just premiered on HBO. This will be the first we're talking about it. So, uh, John, what'd you think?
2: Uh, well, I thought it was pretty amazing. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, uh, you and I and, and many of our friends were all uh, big fans of the novel series. So, you know, we've read the we read the book already. But uh, it's really it was really cool to see the way they uh, brought it to life on the screen. There, you know, I mean, I, I thought it, it looked beautiful. I thought the casting, for the most part, was uh, pretty spot on. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, it was really great. I mean, what'd you, I mean, I assume you loved it as well. I did. Yeah. Uh,
1: and although not as much as Doug, you know, uh, um, uh, yeah. And I guess, you know, for, for people who don't know, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, Doug Cohen. Uh, he's the editor of Roms of Fantasy Magazine. Uh, and, you know, he's one of our friends from New York. Um, and we all, we all met up, uh, at our friend Andrea's, uh, apartment to, uh, you know, to watch the, to, to watch the premiere.
2: Well, except for me, I <laughs>
1: Yeah, I guess if 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 people don't know, John has relocated relocated to the West Coast, so uh, he wasn't on hand. But um, many of uh, many of our other New York friends were all there. But but so Doug, you know, he had gone. You know, they they had this um, Iron Throne that was you know showing up in different cities, including New York. And so on Sunday, it was at uh, like the corner of Fourteenth and Ninth Avenue, I think. And so they had it there, and so Doug went over and uh, you know had his picture. You know, you could like sit on the Iron Throne, and apparently like. There wasn't exactly a line, but uh, it was busy enough that like every couple, you know, every couple seconds or something, somebody new was uh, was sitting down, and so so Doug got his picture taken on the Iron Throne, and then uh, and he, and they also had these uh, um, you know rickshaw kind of things that were <laughs> where the seats were sort of done up to look like the Iron Throne, and he had he had really wanted to uh, to ride one of those, but he hadn't got a chance. But just as he was getting off of the Iron Throne. One of those bicycle rickshaws, you know, pulled up. So he rode that over to, to the subway, you know, to take to take the L train over to Andrew's place. So he was Oh, and then they interviewed him too for uh for OMF Geek or something like that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I read about those rickshaws and i I was so sad that I'm I'm not in, in the area right now to so that I can experience it. Um
1: and then they've had these food trucks going around where they you know, they're giving out, you know, like um Westeros food, like I don't know. I, I didn't see any of them but like people have said they had like lemon cakes and I don't know, bore and stuff, you know, that that the characters eat, eat in the books. Uh.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I've been really glad to see how much HBO is obviously behind the show. I mean, you know, besides the fact that, you know, they greenlit the whole season, which, you know, must have cost a fortune to produce, given the epic scale of the show. But, uh, I mean, man, the promotion. Oh, God, they're just, they're promoting the hell out of this thing.
1: Yeah, so, so everybody watch this, you know, definitely give this show a chance, because I think this show is definitely, you know, the the success or failure of this show is going to determine a lot uh, about the state of fantasy, uh, you know, in, on TV in particular uh, for, for years to come. But no, yeah. Like, like the, the day, you know, the day that the show came out, I was just like visiting all my usual websites and like every single site I visited, there was a Game of Thrones ad on it, you know, even, even like the, you know, like the site I used to check my web stats and
2: stuff, you know, I feel left out that we didn't get any of fantasy.
1: Well, maybe uh, maybe next year, maybe maybe for season two though. I in terms actually in terms of feeling left out, I can't believe they didn't send us a screener. You know, yeah. they've, they've been sending out these screeners to uh, you know the first I think the first six episodes. If anyone from HBO is listening to this, you know, and you have any you know of those screeners lying around, and you want to send it to somebody, uh, you know, like, I'll, I'll, I'll take one, please. <laughs> in the
2: galaxy bitches.
1: <laughs> um. Especially considering some of the other people you sent them to who who plainly didn't deserve them. Yeah, right. But yeah, I guess that was just, that was one of the things too, is that, you know, like, you know, the the first two reviews that that our friends kind of sent around were these really just nasty reviews. And uh, so I was kind of like, oh, I was was really, I was really bummed out. I was like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you have something that you really like and then it's it's suddenly going to be getting this wider uh, exposure and you sort of imagine everyone else is going to like it, you know, as much as you do. And then I sort of, I was was kind of like, I was getting a bad feeling. It's like, oh man, all the reviews, they're just gonna slam it. But then, like almost every review I saw was was really positive. It was just these two. There was one in Slate and one in the New York Times.
2: Well, and I would hesitate to call either of them reviews. I mean, they're they're both like screeds by the authors talking about like why fantasy sucks. Or the Slate one wasn't even was hardly even that it was it was like some sort of biographical essay about this guy's childhood or something (laughs) like you know who cares could you could you squeeze some review into this review please you know i mean he 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 barely took any time to actually comment on the series
1: yeah i don't think either of them from what i remember neither mentioned like any of the actors or you know
2: yeah you know they they didn't do any of that typical stuff you expect to find in a review of something (laughs)
1: Actually, you know, the, 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 the Slate one, it was just real, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, it was just, oh, it was so embarrassing. Um, it was giving me flashbacks back to my, my days in college when I, uh, you know, I was one of the editors on the you know, college newspaper. And uh, there was this one time where this, this this freshman kid had written this this, it was supposed to be funny, I think, but it was just really sort of stupid and insulting about the football team. And then, like, the football team was basically just following him around, <laughs> you know, like glaring at him and like he would just be sitting in the the dining hall and they would just all like sit at the table next to him and just like sit there staring at him and stuff. But, but so, so this, this kid was like, uh, you know, I was like, never, ever write anything like that again, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's like, Hey man, I used to write this stuff like this in high school and everyone loved it. And, you know, I was like, dude, you're not in high school anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, yeah, someone needs to sit down with this slate guy and just say, dude, you're not in high school anymore you know, you need to ha- have some baseline level of sort of professionalism and sort of basic writing competence.
2: Um, yeah. Although, you know, I mean, the as, as, as awful as that one was, I mean, the, uh, by far the more obnoxious one, I thought, was the uh, New York Times one by this uh, Eugenia Belafonte. It makes these really troubling statements about women, and it's by a woman. It's just like, I can't imagine that, like, many women who read that weren't, who read that weren't, offended by it and and obviously it seemed really strange
1: but you know because you know i I shut up at andrea's apartment you know we were talking about that and she's like yeah she's like she's like made me so angry she's like i had to just like go like run on the treadmill you know Mm -hmm. for like half an hour to just like work out you know just the rage that filled me from reading this this stupid (laughs) asinine piece of garbage review it's kind of funny actually you know i just looked up genia belafonte on Wikipedia. And uh, it's like her whole entry is it says that she's a critic for The New York Times and has also written for Time magazine. And then it says also, let's see, Belafonte's writing has been criticized for its superficial treatment of gender issues. Belafonte's 1998 Time cover story, Is Feminism Dead?, was critiqued by Erica Jong and described by Salon.com as poorly thought out. And Belafonte's 2011 New York Times review of the TV series Game of Thrones was widely criticized as sexist for suggesting that only sexual content might motivate women to watch a complex fantasy story, and that's you know that's her whole Wikipedia <laughs> entry.
2: Mine's way longer than that.
0: <laughs>
2: and, hey, yeah, but so um, you know, it's funny that Salon criticized uh, her 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 other review there that you, that was mentioned in the Wikipedia page because the Salon also actually criticized this new one. Um are they actually, uh, in response to these two awful reviews, the Slate one and the New York Times one, Salon actually wrote an article sort of reviewing those two reviews because they were so terrible.
1: Actually, somebody linked to a, a, C.S. Lewis, a C.S. Lewis quote I hadn't seen before, but that I think is really good. Um, but so he says, it is very dangerous to write about a kind of story you hate. Hatred obscures all distinctions. I don't like detective stories, and therefore all detective stories look much alike to me. If I wrote about them, I should therefore infallibly write drivel. Criticism of kinds, as distinct from criticism of works, cannot, of course, be avoided, but it should not masquerade as criticism of individual works. Many reviews are useless because, while purporting to condemn the book, they only reveal the reviewer's dislike of the kind of thing to which it belongs. Hmm. And I guess, you know, I mean, there was a, you know, George R. Martin actually, you know, like, sort of made a reference to this on his blog, and then... I guess, I guess it sounds like the New York Times had to just shut down comments on, on that review because <laughs> so many, you know, angry people were, were posting comments, which I think is very cowardly, um, if that's what they, what they did. Yeah. Um,
2: well, What I heard was that their, their comment system couldn't handle it, but uh, that there were so many people trying to comment. But if that's the case, that's pretty pathetic. I mean, they're the New York Times. But anyway, so <laughs> what did you think of it more specifically? Well, because you're, you're now like you're like a scholar of this <laughs> book. I mean, you've re, you, you've reread it a number of times, and like you can, you could probably tell me the whole story of it right now. Um, don't because we don't have time, <laughs> but um, so, so what did you think? I mean, like I, I read it and I love, and I love the book as well, but I mean, I don't, I, I've only read it once, and I'm not, I, I wouldn't consider myself a scholar of it. Well,
1: I mean, uh, you know, they had released this, uh, 12 minute um you know they they released the uh, the first 12 minutes of the episode so i wa- i actually watched that you know five or six times and uh i really loved that they made a few changes uh one thing is that the um you know the the rangers come across or you know the i guess one of the rangers initially comes across this clearing where he sees all these uh in the book he sees all these sort of lifeless bodies and in the tv show they changed it so he comes across all these sort of the bodies are all kind of chopped up and bloody and there are um you know, decapitated heads impaled in stakes on the ground and stuff. And they're sort of arranged in sort of a uh, sort of a circle or something, which I thought was really, I really, it was really creepy. Although it did sort of make me wonder, I mean, kind of how I, how I'd always imagined. I mean, I think what we're supposed to infer, you know, happens in that scene is that, you know, he comes across these dead bodies and then they come back to life as zombies basically and sort of wander off. And so when he comes back again, they're gone. Um, But I did sort of wonder then, like if they've all been hacked to pieces, you know, how do they, where did all the pieces go?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I wondered about that too. Yeah. Cause I mean, that, that wasn't really clear what happened there. Uh, just, just watch, just taking it from the show, you know, without having the, you know, knowledge of the book. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I mean, there, you know,
1: there is something that happens later in the book that, you know, might, might maybe be a partial explanation for that, but I guess it is kind of a spoiler. So I won't, we won't talk about it right now, but so that was a change. And then another change is they made it so that, you know, you know there are sort of three characters um that we see in that first scene uh, you know Waymar Royce um Garrett and and Will and in the um in the book uh, Garrett is the one who survives and you know gets beheaded by Ned Stark and and they changed it to make it Will in the in the TV show which I actually think is a pretty sensible change I think you know I can sort of see why they made that change it kind of you know makes more sense that that you would see the younger guy you know mm-hmm. kind of you know scared out of his mind and incoherent and stuff um, I guess, like, in terms of changes, you know I mean, they added a couple scenes that aren't in the book. Like, we're, we're introduced to um, uh, Jamie and Cersei um, when they're still in King's Landing. They're sort of looking over uh, yeah. Jon Arryn. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, th- I, I didn't think that scene was particularly necessary, but I, I could see why they would add it. It sort of, you know, sets up yeah. right away that there's this uh, conspiracy. And it sort of, you know, since, since Jamie and Cersei are such major characters, it sort of, you know, establishes the un- ensemble, you know, nature of the story. Uh, yeah i mean they
2: needed they needed some exposition in there i mean because that that first episode is really dense um you know for people who haven't seen haven't read the book i mean i think it's it was probably a lot harder to follow than uh maybe maybe you might think um you know since you know it so well it's like it's hard for you to tell i would think oh
1: yeah yeah um,
2: you know so i mean i was watching it with um with one person who had read it and knew it very well and you know so i would read it Christy had read it and our friend John had read it and, you know, he knew it really well. Christy like sort of remembered, you know, parts, but not everything. And like, you know, and like, I also like, you know, I remembered parts, but not everything. And then, and then we had a fourth person who uh, had never seen, had never read it before. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a few, there was a few times where she was sort of a little confused. And so we just sort of stopped to give her a little bit of extra background, but uh you know, I mean, oh, oh, I mean, I have to say though, it was it was not as uh it was not as confusing as as I feared it would be because I'd seen some reviews saying that oh, oh you're gonna need like a a roster or something to keep track of all the characters. But I thought they did actually a really good job of introducing them and like without you know sort of hammering you over the head with the you know just like you know oh this is this guy and this is this guy. You know I thought they they did that all pretty well, given that they it was incredibly difficult to actually you know get all the names out there so that you can actually begin to, you know, understand who everyone is. Um, although they didn't manage to get around to introducing, uh, Uh, you know, it's like, he's there, but he's just like, you know, he's just like some dude. And and I was like, that must be, that must be on. And, and, you know, just, but, um, you know, I was waiting for someone to address them or something, but they never did.
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, I thought they did a good balance. I mean, if they were making it purely for people who had already read the books and knew them really well, you know, I think they yeah. would have written the dialogue a little bit more naturalistically. I mean, that was that was one yeah. thing is that, like a lot of the dialogue. I mean, you could tell that it was sort of written in, in a way to explain things to the audience, you know. Yeah. Um, it was sort of a weakness, but it was sort of an, an, an inevitable one. Uh, uh,
2: so, I mean so what do you think of the casting uh was anyone did anyone stand out for you or uh, anyone uh, either way did anyone stand out either good or bad for you in particular
1: uh, I mean I thought the casting was fantastic uh mm-hmm. really um I mean some of the some of the actors like they, they didn't really match my mental image of the characters yeah, sure that's always happened yeah but i thought
2: that I thought they did a quite a good job with that though that that didn't happen too much with me uh you know Tyrion actually uh, you know he's such an iconic character in the books and it's like, I mean, Peter Dinklage is great, but I mean, he's not, he's not really what I pictured.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, I mean, he's, he's like a pretty good looking guy.
1: Yeah, no, there's, there's no question that Peter Dinklage is, is much better looking than, than Tyrion is described in the book. Uh, right. But uh, I mean, he's, I mean, he just did a fantastic job. I thought, uh, I mean, Rob was kind of complaining that he thought that um, the actor who played Robert was not, he didn't look like he had ever, you know, Robert is described as having been once like the most, biggest badass most muscular guy ever and he's kind of like let himself go and now he's fat um and the actor they have playing robert he doesn't ever look he doesn't look like he was ever really you know the biggest most buff badass guy um but in terms of his act in terms of his acting and everything i thought he was he did a really great job yeah i guess i guess we should mention if if people don't know that they they invented a a whole dothraki language uh you know for this for this show it's funny you know actually you know george uh, R. r martin has said that people ask him you know People write him letters and they say, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in High Valyrian, you know, which is another imaginary language in the books. You know, could you send me a, a dictionary of, of it and stuff? And he says, you know, I, uh, I've made up six words in High Valyrian and, you know, when I need a seventh one, I'll make up a seventh one. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but now, you know, I guess they, they got a, um, you know, a, a linguistics professor or something to actually do the whole Dothraki language so it all, you know, makes
2: sense and everything. Um, and So I wonder if uh, if he's gonna, you know, if he's just gonna pick that up and start using it in for himself now. I mean, I guess he kind of has to keep it consistent, right? Otherwise, uh, people are gonna complain.
1: Yeah, and I don't see why he wouldn't want to. I mean, that just seems. Well, like yeah, a right.
2: I mean, they've already done the work, right?
1: Fantastic resource. Yeah, actually, you know, in one of those articles, I think it was in Laura Miller's uh, article uh, in the New Yorker, which is excellent. She says that you know George actually you know has trouble that there are, you know that there are fans you know who know the world better than he does, and that there's you know this this guy um, Ilio Garcia. Uh, who's a big fan and who's actually, he's working with George on this sort of like um, world of ice and fire uh, book that he, you know, yeah. that, that George actually like calls him, calls up, you know, Elio when he has a, you know, when he's like, you know, needs to check some, check some detail about, you know, some, some obscure bit of the history or something. So I don't remember if, if Joffrey had any lines, maybe he had one or two, I don't remember, but uh
2: yeah, I don't think he does. He just looks, He just sits there looking smug. Yeah, no, but somebody
1: said, you know, uh, they, that was great casting because I wanted to punch him in the face even though he hadn't, he hadn't said anything. <laughs>
2: yeah, I agree. No, I agree. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that was perfect. I mean, you know, we'll see how he acts when he actually has something to say. But, uh, yeah, no, he looks the part for sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know,
1: it was, you know, I was kind of reminded of, you know, when in our interview with Daniel Abraham, he was talking about how hard it is to adapt Daenerys' um, storyline and and that that was like I did kind of feel like they were you know that was something that they struggled with here because especially compared to the books, you know like so much of her i mean she's like one character who doesn't have anyone to confide in, so like we you know our only way to know and and like her part it's so much about um her fears and like her gradually conquering her fears and you know the sort of increasing and decreasing of her fears and um and so like in in the books you know like when she rides the horse, you know, uh that's a big moment for the first time that's a big moment when sort of so some of her fears start to drain away. But when you do that on TV, you know, it's like oh, it's just somebody riding a horse, you know. Um Yeah. I guess the other though the other big change that occurs to me um from the books is that in the books, uh on Daenerys' wedding night, Kal Drogo is sort of unexpectedly gentle. Um Oh yeah, right. And, and you know, it's it's actually it's almost kind of sweet, you know, he sort of takes his time and, you know, undoes his hair and I think she combs his hair and you know it's it's like this long long thing and, and then she actually is sort of like consents uh you know in the end and um in the tv show I mean it's it's very short and not does nice not nice at all special? yeah um and so I mean they I mean I think that that's a really that's a really tough choice I think because I mean it does uh you know it certainly changes how we view the characters from from the way they are in the books but I can sort of understand how, I mean, the, the, the one thing that I was sort of like the Dothraki wedding was sort of like my, my least favorite um thing in, mm-hmm. in this episode. I, I, I sort of couldn't ignore the feeling that I was on set with like extras and
2: Oh yeah. You know, yeah. It probably, it felt, it felt the least real of, of, of anything in that episode. The, the, the Dothraki,
1: you know, don't come across well in this, you know, in what, in the first episode. And this is a kind of like another thing that's like hard to do on TV um, as opposed to the book. Because like in the book, I mean, because the whole, you know, it, it's necessary sort of for dramatic purposes that, you know, Daenerys is terrified and that all this seems just like strange and, you know, and, and, and frightening to her. And in a book, you can say, you know, like she felt like everyone was watching her. You know, she, you know, she was terrified. She felt like, you know, that she didn't belong, that they weren't welcoming and all this stuff. And you know, maybe that's true and maybe it is maybe, You know, maybe they're just kind of acting kind of normal, you know, sort of more normal, and that's just how she perceives it. And since we're in her point of view, you know, we see how she perceives, you know, their nasty looks and stuff like that. Um, but then when you come to film it, you can only film it with them giving her scary looks and stuff. It's like I kind of, like, there's this there's this scene where she, like, when she sort of walk. I guess when she's, um, when Drogo is presenting her the ho- her the, the the white horse and she kind of walks forward and <laughs> the death here are all kind of like, I don't know, I felt like they're kind of like, crowding around her and all giving her, like, scary looks and stuff. And I could I could almost imagine, like, the director yelling, you know, like, okay, extras, act scary, you know, more menacing, you know, more menacing, you know, and, um, yeah, but, I mean, and, and it's, it's just necessary, you know, for, for Daenerys's, you know, character arc that, uh, that all this stuff is, you know, really scary to start off with. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the Dothraki sort of look like, uh, you know, going forward from episode to episode. Um, I guess, and you mentioned, I mean, another thing I I could actually have done with, like, fewer boob shots on it, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, just every time, you know, every time they had sort of, like, what seemed like kind of uh, more boob shots than necessary, it just made me kind of, like, remember that, you know, sort of the thought that popped into my head was, like, oh, they're doing this because it's HBO and HBO, you know, this is what they do to, like, get ratings and stuff. And, uh, you know, that sort of just pulls me out of the story and suddenly I'm, you know. I'm not thinking about the fact that this is really happening, but I'm thinking about the fact that I'm watching an HBO show, and mm-hmm. so I mean, just just for for that reason alone, you know, I wish there had been a little more <laughs> subtle about that.
2: Right, right, yeah. You know, actually, I, I even made a comment. Um, so when Viserys uh, is is like uh, first talking to Daenerys, and and he you know he takes her her gown off, and he's sort of ogling her, and then you know um, he walks away, and and the the camera angle is from behind her, showing him walking away. And so, like, you sort of see her, you know, her butt. And then they actually pan down to get the whole cheek, you know, both cheeks all, all fully in frame. It's like, really? I mean, seemed a little unnecessary. Um, given that, you know, she, they're going to do more, more shots of her completely nude, uh, in like, you know, 10 seconds, you know, cause when she, you know, turns around and walks into the, the, the boiling hot bath there. Um, mm.
1: uh, well, it was, it was funny, you know, when, you know, Jordan was looking on her, um, her iPhone, you know to see like what people were saying on twitter and i guess one of the twitter comments was uh game of thrones takes place in a you know a long ago sort of medieval society long before the invention of the missionary position
2: <laughs> yeah i saw that that was funny
1: i guess that's that's a change you know i mean in uh, in the book you know when bran comes across jamie and cersei jamie kind of has cersei pressed against the wall and they mm-hmm. ch- they changed that i think i read something maybe they did it because um lyanna was pregnant at the time oh really and so, like you know, yeah. they needed they wanted her to be in like more, oh, like more comfortable position, where it was easier yeah. easier to hide, you know, her um, stomach and stuff. I mean, again, I you know, I you know, I'm sure that they they couldn't make it any longer, but there were you know, there were a couple of scenes where I, I really felt like they would have benefited a lot from just you know being expanded a little bit. Um yeah. and, and like the the scene with you know, like Daenerys's wedding night was one where I, I just felt like you know if, if that had just you know there had been sort of just more if that had just gone slower. It would have been more effective. Um, and that scene with uh, with Bran and the tower was another one where, I mean, in, in the yeah. book, in the book, it really, you know, Bran's going to fall, and Jamie sort of grabs him and helps him up, and you know, it seems like things are all, all right, you know. And, um, and in the TV show, I felt like it just sort of, it was sort of too quick and casual. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, it's a pretty, it's pretty accelerated. Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of the Part of the reason for that, um, for them not being able to have the luxury—I mean, what one of the reasons they didn't have the luxury of expanding some of these scenes is that basically they just—they felt. I think they felt that they had to end that episode with, you know, with that scene with Brand getting pushed out of the tower. Mm-hmm.
1: I guess it's yeah. I mean, I agree that was absolutely the right place to end it. You know, and I certainly don't wish that they had, uh, you know, ended the story. You know, ended the story early. You know, at an earlier spot in the story. Um, I just no. wish that you know that the episode had maybe been, you know, seventy-two sure. minutes long or something. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, everything that you just heard that John and I just said was all recorded the day after the Game of Thrones premiere, and it is now one week later, and we just watched Episode 2. So we're going to talk about that now. So, uh, John, what did you think of Episode 2?
2: Yeah, well, I thought it was another great episode. Um, You know, watching it is is a little different for me this week than it was last week, because since getting all excited about uh, the series last week and and talking about it with you, uh, I started rereading the book, Game of Thrones. Um, so you know, I, I I'm you know, whereas I watched episode one without having read the book in a number of years, um and not remembering it all, all that well, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm watching episode two with uh, the book fresh in my mind. Uh but still is it is quite good. I mean, you know, there's a, you know, there's a there's there's a few things here and there where, you know, you you notice there's uh, differences from the book, but um I mean I, I don't I don't uh, I don't recall anything that I thought was uh wrong. Um, you know, I, I it was really awesome seeing the wall. Um, I mean, that was a, that was an amazing shot. And, uh, um, you know, we get a lot of good Tyrion stuff in this episode and, and then, you know, uh, Peter Dinklage is really uh, growing on me more and more as, as Tyrion. Uh, um, you know, they did a, they did a really good job of scruffing him up more too. I, I, it seems like uh, he, he he seems more Tyrion like to me, the more I see him. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I just, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty great all around. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I mean,
1: um, you know, I went back and rewatched the first episode two more times. And now I have actually went and watched this episode three times, uh, you know, essentially back to back uh, since it came out. And uh, now I'm really getting into it. I mean, it's sort of um, it's sort of the same thing like with uh, I found with Lord of the Rings, where the first time I watched Fellowship of the Ring, when when the Uruk-hai first came up on screen, I was just kind of like, oh, come on, those are guys in rubber costumes, you know. And Mm -hmm. I really, you know, I really want to get into it, but it's like, you know, the special effects just aren't quite there. But I found that if I once I watched it a couple more times, you can kind of you you sort of get acclimated to it and you can kind of let yourself go with it more. And I'm finding sort of the same thing with Game of Thrones that, you know, the the sets and special effects and stuff just aren't aren't always there. But, you know, once you sort of get used to it, you can kind of let your, you know, let your let your imagination go and uh, and get into it more.
2: Yeah, so you know, one thing I was sort of wondering about is like, as I was, you know, I mean, obviously, a, a lot of a lot of the events of the book are being compressed here, and like, a lot of a lot of ground is being covered uh, fairly quickly. You know, uh, I, I am kind of starting to wonder, like, are we gonna get? I mean, are we actually gonna be able to fit everything in the book into this first season? I mean, uh, it sounds like the plan is to, you know, to do the whole book in the first season, not, you know, not bleed over into the second season, also being Game of Thrones, but. um yeah, I don't know, man. It's It seems like there's a lot of stuff that still needs to happen. And, and you know, with only eight more episodes after this, it's like, you know, how are we going to fit it all in?
1: I, I do sort of, as I was saying about the previous episode, I really wish these episodes were, you know, an hour and a half or maybe two hours. Because uh, a lot of the scenes just seem to go really fast. Like the scene, particularly the scene where uh, the guy with the knife tries to assassinate mm-hmm. Bran. Uh, yeah. That scene just seemed to go really, really fast. It was almost like that guy was in the room you know, mm-hmm. even before, you know, it was just an instance after uh, Rob uh, left. Yeah. um, But that that did actually make me wonder if we'll ever see some sort of uh, extended edition for, for Game of Thrones yeah. like we did with uh, Lord of the Rings. Because, I mean, they must have all sorts of bonus scenes that they've shot that got edited out. And, you know, that might, you know, allow them, if they do some sort of extended edition, that might allow them to insert in some, some, some more of the connective tissue stuff. And in particular, there was one thing missing... From this episode, it's it's kind of a spoil spoiler, but it has to do with that that that, that guy with the knife being sent to assassinate Bran. There's 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 a scene that seems kind of uh, integral to that that's not here. So I'll I'll be curious to see how they uh, how they handle that moving forward. Um, but I mean I, I think sort of the, our, our one of the big things we were wondering about going into this episode was was the guy playing Joffrey going to be able to you know because we didn't, we didn't hear him talking talk at all in the previous episode like was he going to be able to act like enough of a dick to really yeah. be Joffrey and I think I think he hit it out of the park as far as I'm yeah concerned.
2: yeah no totally yeah
1: <laughs> one of the uh one of the comments I saw in this episode they said the only thing uh the only thing wrong with this episode was that he didn't get slapped enough
2: <laughs> yeah yeah you yeah, know I mean that was great too though I, I like that scene with uh with Tyrion slapping him that was great um and actually uh. Uh, I was glad we saw more of the Hound in this episode because like in the first episode, you know, we only see him with his helmet on, I think. You know, I mean, in this episode, he's walking around without his helmet on. And so you can actually, you know, you actually see pretty clearly that he's, you know, burned up. And so, I mean, that was I I was glad to see that detail still there that they didn't just, you know, make him make him not have that characteristic.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Although I'm a little I'm a little concerned with with
1: how he 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 doesn't quite act like the Hound uh, to me so far, because I think of the Hound as being just really poisonously cynical Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, uh, sort of amoral and, uh, intimidating. And he's described as having this raspy voice and in, in the show so far, he seems kind of more kind of just sort of an average guy. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, you know, he hasn't had a whole lot to do yet. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll reserve judgment, but, um, so, and so, so that, and and like the scene where he, where it's him and Sansa and Ilyan Payne was sort of the weak, the weakest part of this episode for me. Uh, Mm Um. Ilyan Payne uh, just seemed kind of comically weird to me, more than yeah. more than like scary.
2: Yeah, and that was actually a really good scene in the book too, and it, it didn't it didn't quite play um, as well as it did on it. It didn't, it didn't quite play as well on the show. Um, although I have to say, you know, one thing the one thing I really liked in this
1: episode was Sean Bean's acting.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you know, there's uh, there's a popular fan theory for who Jon Snow's mother is. And if you uh, are sort of thinking of that when you watch the scenes where Sean Bean, where the, the issue of Jon Snow's mother comes up, just the way he acts those scenes, I think is just so amazingly good. So, I mean, one, one of the big changes uh, from from the book is that there are no dream sequences um, in the TV show. Did you, did you notice that?
2: I would be surprised if the next episode doesn't begin with Bran's dream sequence, even though we see him wake up at the end of this episode. Because, I mean, that was kind of important, right?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, certainly in the book it is. I mean, I don't know how, yeah. how else they might handle it. I mean, they might, um, I mean, since since the stuff that kind of comes up in the dream doesn't really play a role in the plot until much later in the story, mm-hmm. they might just push, you know, sort of kick that down the road uh, right. quite a bit. Um, but,
2: yeah, and I mean, I guess, um, did uh, Daenerys have any dreams by this point in the book? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, because her her dreams are really important too. I would think to to have in the show. So, I mean, I hope we're going to see some of those at some point. Although her timeline has been shifted around a bit here and there on the show compared to how it is in the book. So,
1: but I mean, I, I think you know, I think a lot of it is just time, and also I think it's just hard to do dream sequences on a TV show. It's hard. It's hard to not make them come across as just cheesy. You know.
2: Yeah. Oh, so you know, I, I notice uh, Theon Greyjoy has a you know he continues to be prominently in the episode when we still haven't heard his name. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Maybe they can keep that going all season long.
2: <laughs> it's like, who is that guy? Why is he always there? Why is he always smirking?
1: I mean, one big change that they made was that, um, well, it, it, you know, there are these moments that are sort of, I think, controversial among fans um, because, you know, if you've read the whole series and you go back and read game of Thrones, there are just some moments where not everyone, where it, it almost feels like the characters are a bit out of character. Like, they weren't mm-hmm. completely in focus yet um you know so like one of them is is uh when in the scene we actually it, we actually saw it in the last uh, episode where Tyrion talks to Jon Snow outside the feast Tyrion sort of like is revealed to be as this amazing gymnast and then it never really comes you know that never really comes up again uh you know and so they edited edited that out and a lot of people sort of feel like that you know that part where he just Springs, you know, he does all this gymnastics. It just doesn't seem consistent with Tyrion as he develops later into the, you know, into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a- another one of those is, you know, and I was really sort of anticipating this in this episode. But when Jon Snow goes to uh say goodbye to Bran, as he's leaving, Catelyn says to him, it should have been you. Mm-hmm. It should have been you who, you know, yeah. is in a coma. Yeah. Yeah. and um and they they and they left that out i was I was a little relieved that they did, um, oh okay, yeah, because uh you know like a lot, like a lot of people have said that they just could never have any sympathy or affection for Catlin after that moment, and uh i don 't know it seems like there 's enough in the story to make you dislike Catlin that mm-hmm. you know maybe cutting out a thing here or there where she doesn 't come across well might not be such a bad thing, I guess uh there were a couple of things I noticed in the last episode rewatching it that I had, you know, that I hadn't noticed when we talked before. But one of them is you can see Hodor in the. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, in the you I know. I w- him. Yeah. When when Robert comes in, you know, when Robert first rides into Winterfell, and all the sort of Winterfell inhabitants are standing or kneeling there, you can mm-hmm. see you can see this just gigantic guy. Uh, okay. And I'm sure I'm sure that must be Hodor. One thing that I thought was kind of cool that I didn't notice um, on my first viewing is that in the first uh, Daenerys chapter, it's mentioned that there are Unsullied um, who are these uh, soldiers. They have these sort of spikes on their caps and uh, they become really important in the third book. Um, And so it's, it's kind of, you know, so I didn't really notice them on my first read. And so it's, it's really, that's another one of those things where you read the whole series and you go back and you're like, Oh wow, they were mentioned that early in the series. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can sort of during a, the Dothraki wedding—you can kind of see them standing around. I think maybe at Illyrio's um, mansion, you can kind of see them just kind of standing around in the background. That's kind of a, a cool detail.
2: Yeah, actually, you know, uh, uh, I noticed in the book too that the, you, know, um, you know, at least in that opening chap, in that opening prologue, you know, they only call them the Others, um, and then it's not until like later on that somebody else uses the term White Walker. But uh, I guess they they wanted to have a unified term for the for those creatures and just went ahead with with the White Walkers oh so you know i was i was sort of chuckling about this but like when i when i when i went back and sort of rereading i i had forgotten that they were called the others you know and then um you know so then but then i was thinking about george r R. martin's recent comments about lost and i was like oh you know that's part of his resentment for Lost is that he's mad that they stole his others from him Mm -hmm. you know because on lost the bad guys are called the others
1: yeah because i mean you know i don't know if, if people if people didn't follow this uh damon lindelof who was one of the guys who ran lost he recently uh uh, and, uh George, you know, George R. R. Martin was quoted uh in, in a magazine intervie- interview just in passing as saying that he didn't want to pull a lost with the series <laughs> and uh you know have have all this have all these loose ends at the end. And uh and, and, George- and
2: have the and have the finale retroactively ruin the entire <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, I was I was I was trying to be nice. But uh and so so David Damon Lindelof kind of took exception to this and announced that he was launching a Twitter war with, with George R. R. Martin. Well, first, first he first he said, uh, you know, these comments from George R. R. Martin. This is going to keep my therapist in money for some some time to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he announced he was, you know, going to start a Twitter war with George R. R. Martin. And then he joked, you know, the, the problem with being in a Twitter war with George R. R. Martin is it takes him six months to
2: respond. <laughs> yeah, it was it was all pretty funny.
1: Yeah, but boy, I, yeah, but I I sure hope George doesn't pull a Lost with the series. I actually <laughs> was just reading that he uh, apparently he told. Um, uh the, the showrunners for, for Game of Thrones, uh, David Benioff and Dan Weiss, sort of the Cliff Notes version of how the series is gonna end. Oh. Um, you know, so in case anything happens to him, you know, they'll mm-hmm. they'll be able to end it and, you know, kind Definitely. of that's what I read.
2: Yeah, so that's interesting because uh I heard somewhere that George Martin had said uh that you know he specifically doesn't want anyone to finish his work if he if he dies. So like, you know, in the case of like Robert Jordan, where Robert Jordan died with Wheel of Time unfinished and Brandon Sanderson was hired to finish it. Um, I heard somewhere that Martin had said that he specifically doesn't want that to happen and that he, you know, that I guess he has arrangements in place for that to happen.
1: But that's that's what I read in this interview that he told uh, Dave and Dan this. So I don't know, it might just be different when somebody else is sinking hundreds of millions of dollars into a, a TV show. Right. right.
2: Uh, oh, well, no, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't even a question uh, for HBO. I mean, there, there's no way that they would have uh uh, you know, started to to shoot the show if they if they thought that they wouldn't be able to you know finish it if they want to, yeah. I mean, I just thought that was interesting, uh, given that he had said that you know.
1: Mm. And, it, and I mean, you know, t- it does sort of give you uh, confidence that you know that there is an ending that you know he's, right. he's he shared with uh, people.
2: Well, hopefully they keep uh, they keep the lid on that and it doesn't get reported in in <laughs> in the media I- ever.
1: I mean, one one thing you know, just reading commentary online, a lot of people noticed was. Uh, that the direwolves seem somewhat absent from a lot of the scenes. Uh, like people were particular particularly remarking on uh, Jon Snow's direwolf ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you would sort of expect to see him running alongside Jon, you know, as they're all leaving Winterfell and stuff like that, and, and you don't. I was reading that, uh, I guess I've, people are sort of reporting that that the dogs turned out to be harder to train than they were expecting, and so, you know, they, they kind of uh, maybe didn't use them we're kind of only using them for the scenes where they absolutely had to be in there mm-hmm.
2: um and that was pretty that was pretty brutal actually at the end of the the episode you know where uh where Lord Stark has to go in uh and kill um lady um you know i, I was I was figuring that they were probably gonna do that off screen it's like you know human brutality is fine to show on screen, but you can't show anyone beheading an animal mm-hmm. uh but uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean uh, that that was uh, that was probably about as well as they could have done that. I mean, it, I mean that was a, that was going to be a really hard scene to film, no matter what.
1: And that was, it was it was pretty it was kind of chill, chillingly effective to me how they cut from that to uh, to Bran waking up. You know. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, uh, you know, actually, one thing you know, speaking of uh, of scenes being compressed, I felt like uh, the scene with Arya and uh, and uh, and Nymeria, uh, where you know she's out in the woods and she's trying to make the her dire wolf run away um you know so that so that she won't get killed that seemed like that happened really fast like you know i think it would be pretty hard to convince that that direwolf to to leave her you know like she hit her once with a rock it's like i think you know they should have had a few more rocks thrown or something you know i mean
1: (laughs) i don't know how how many i don't know how much how many minutes do you want to take up though with like the girl throwing (laughs) hitting, hitting the dog with rocks i mean
2: i know i mean it's hard but i mean um well, I mean, the thing is, though, that that could have been, like, a good emotional scene, like, and I felt like it, it didn't really, um, it never really got to the point where you could even be emotional about it, because it was, it was over so quickly, you know? Mm, yeah. And I yeah. guess, uh, there's only so much, uh, dire wolf emotional scenes you can have, uh, in one episode, and they're saved, they saved it all for Lady at the end.
1: So, any predictions for next week? I'm really looking forward to seeing, uh, Arya learning some, uh, sword fighting skills. I, I think we might be starting that next week.
2: Yeah, those are some of my, sa- my favorite scenes in the first book, uh. And and I can't wait to see some of the stuff uh, that, you know, I, that I know is coming. What I heard was that, you know, um, the actress who's playing Arya,
1: Macy Williams, had read the books and she knew that Arya was supposed to fight left-handed. And mm-hmm. so uh, she didn't want them. She was afraid that, and she's actually right-handed, and she she was afraid that if she told the producers that she was right-handed that they would just decide to make Arya right-handed. So she pretended to be left-handed because she wanted huh. that detail in the TV show.
2: That's awesome. Wait, how old is that kid?
1: Uh, i don't know like 12 or something i think
2: wow not only did she read the, all the books at that age but then she actually cared that much about that detail that she uh, <laughs> that she would like learn how to like fence left-handed or whatever <laughs> that's pretty amazing i mean i was already really impressed with her as an actress as it is i mean she like she seems to be nailing Arya pretty good but uh wow that's pretty impressive Okay, so, but I mean,
1: overall, I think uh, we're both really happy with how Game of Thrones is going and definitely looking forward to checking out future episodes. And so I think that's our episode. And, you know, we're now uh, sponsored by Audible.com. And so, um, you know, if you want to help out the show, you can uh, go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on one of the ads for Audible and sign up for a free trial subscription. Maybe a book that you might want to check out is Hunter's Run by Daniel Abraham and Gardner Dozois and George R. R. Martin that came up in the interview. And then another one you might want to check out is the Anthology Warriors, edited by George R. R. Martin, uh, and it includes uh, his new Duncan Egg novella, The Mystery Night, and um, you know, both of those available on audible.com.
2: All right, well, that was our episode, and thanks for listening. Um, you know, if you want us, another way you can support the show is uh, if you want to leave a comment uh, on io9, that lets them know that you love us. Or if you want to go to iTunes and uh, and leave a rating or a review there, we've, we're up to fifty ratings. So if you like the show, go over there and give us a five star rating or whatever you whatever you think uh, we're we're worthy of. Um, and you know, if you don't like the show, don't do that. You know, just don't don't rate us at all because we don't want any one star ratings. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, those are other ways you can support the show. And uh, thanks again for listening.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of I-O-9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends.